0: Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism, and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm very much looking forward to our discussion today, where Tony will be sharing his insights on the changing domestic and international uh, political landscape. Uh, To start with, we'll go to the international front, where there's two very important pieces of news, one from Japan, one from the United Kingdom, and first to the tragic news of former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated last Friday. Abe was Prime Minister of Japan from 2012 to 2020, overlapping with your time as Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, Tony, you've written, a, I think, a very important piece in today's Australian newspaper, which we'll um, get into. Um, To begin with, I thought perhaps... Given your relationship with Japan and Abe personally, if you could share some of your observations about Abe and his very important legacy.
1: Thanks, Dan. Shinzo Abe wasn't just Japan's longest-serving prime minister. He was the best friend of Australia that Japan has ever produced and he was a statesman of world stature. Uh, The lasting legacy of Shinzo Abe uh, will certainly be the Quad – because the Quad, the security partnership between Australia, the United States, Japan, and India, would never have happened without Abe's consistent drive over many years. Uh, he was a part of the first Quad get together back in 2007 when he was briefly Prime Minister for the first time. And certainly when he came back in 2012, he made it one of his real missions to turn the Quad into something that had happened and then faded. Into something that then happened and stayed, and it really did require a non-Western statesman of Abe's stature and drive uh, to bring India out of its self-sufficiently self-sufficiency, out of its traditional detachment uh, from uh, affairs beyond the subcontinent, uh, and India is, let's face it, the key member of the Quad uh, because uh, if we are going to ensure that the liberal global order, uh, if we are going to ensure that uh, global democracy survives in the decades to come, I think it will only be because uh, India is uh, on the side of the democracies. And that's something that really only Shinzo Abe could have brought about.
0: Just touching on that broader international context of the Quad and the challenges of the Chinese Communist Party, he was someone that had a very clear understanding of those Challenges and, as you say, undertook practical steps to try and ameliorate um, some of those um, issues. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on the on the challenge of of China as it relates to Japan in that strategic context?
1: I can remember, Dan, on my first visit to Japan as opposition leader in late 2010, I was a, a little taken aback at just how anxious the whole Japanese uh, establishment was about the ongoing rise of China. Now, back then, and probably for another five or six years beyond, uh, we in Australia were tending to look at China as a a great economic opportunity. Uh, With the benefit of hindsight, we were indulging in a bit of wishful thinking about the Beijing communist regime Uh, Nevertheless, uh, the Japanese uh, were certainly much more clear-eyed about uh, the CCP than we were, Uh, but it took someone of Abe's stature to convert concern into appropriate action. Uh, He didn't just uh, uh, tell visitors that there was a problem. Uh, He actually uh, corralled the democracies into an effective countermeasure, Mm. Uh, because that's exactly what the Quad is. The Quad is not a formal military alliance. Uh, The Quad is not, in a sense, um, targeted at anyone in particular, but it is very much pro-democracy and the global liberal order. And obviously, in an Indo-Pacific context, uh, that means it is lined up against China, because China is quite open. Uh, The Beijing regime is quite open about its intentions, not just to take back Taiwan, having crushed Hong Kong, uh, not just to coerce all its own citizens, uh, especially the Uyghurs, but uh, Xi Jinping and uh, the rest of the Chinese Politburo are absolutely open and public about their desire to be the world's number one power at the latest by 2014, 2049, the centenary of the communist takeover. So, Uh, The democracies need to act in concert uh, to ensure that our freedoms are protected, to ensure that the sovereignty of smaller countries is not ruthlessly trampled. Um, As uh, Shingo Yamagami, the Japanese ambassador to Australia, said yesterday, it's very important that we ensure that what's happening now to Ukraine does not happen next to Taiwan and it's only because of the operation of entities like the Quad that that won't be the case.
0: You mentioned that Abe was the longest serving Prime Minister of Japan and Japan has had a a habit, at least in recent history, of cycling through its Prime Ministers relatively quickly.
1: A bit like Australia, I suppose. Some
0: similarities. (laughs) To what do you attribute his longevity in that role? So there's obviously the international context in your time as Prime Minister and in in your interactions with him, did you glean any particular qualities that he had, leadership or moral ethical qualities that lent himself well to that role?
1: There was nothing of the firebrand about Shinzo Abe. Uh, He certainly wasn't uh, someone who would uh, bang the table and shake his fist or anything like that. Um, He was a decent Uh, and considerate man, Uh, but he was also a very strong man. He had a very strong view about um, Japan's place in the world. Uh, While he was uh, naturally apologetic about some of the mistakes that Japan made in the 1930s and early 1940s, he didn't think that past errors should necessarily Um, corrupt the entire future of the country. He didn't want Japan always to be blighted by the past, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable position for uh, a democratic statesman to adopt. Hmm. Uh, But he obviously did have uh, uh, a capacity to inspire, a capacity to lead. A lot of Japanese prime ministers have been grey consensus figures. Abe, as I said, he certainly wasn't a firebrand, but he was someone who was prepared to state a position. He was someone who was prepared to put forward a course of action and someone who was prepared to challenge his LDP colleagues and his countrymen more widely to get on with it.
0: Mm. No, thank you, Tony. And as you remind us in uh, your opinion piece today, a video from Abe is expected to feature in a ceremony at the Japanese embassy in, in Canberra later this week to mark the Um, I guess, to pay tribute to him and and to mark this uh, very tragic event that's taken place. I also wanted to turn on the international front now, Tony, to the United Kingdom, where there will soon be a a new prime minister, uh, we assume, in the next few weeks as they go through their process there. And as you know, Boris Johnson recently resigned uh, from the role after uh, well over 50 uh, members of parliament in the Tory party resigned, including a number of very key um, ministers. This is a a very significant uh, fast-paced downfall from the 2019 election where the Tories won in a landslide, including winning winning millions of voters who had previously only ever voted Labor or had never voted in their life. So, it was a a very significant victory, largely on the back of the promise to implement uh, Brexit. Uh, Johnson only served as three years as PM, which is about the same amount of time as his predecessor, um, Theresa May. So, uh, Tony, to begin with, I just wanted to get your observations about the the context for Boris Johnson's resignation and, and what you think this means for the United Kingdom going forward.
1: Thanks, Dan. It's a pretty brave political party uh, that uh, decapitates itself, uh, particularly when the incumbent Prime Minister has won a massive parliamentary majority, a historically large parliamentary majority. And I just hope uh, that the Tories uh, have not done this uh, out of uh, colleague jealousy and Remainer bile. And believe me, Dan, there is a lot of Remainer bile left in Britain. Uh, There are many people in the UK establishment who could never forgive Boris Johnson for leading the United Kingdom out of the EU. Mm. Uh, And I think it's going to be incredibly important that uh, Boris Johnson's successor, whoever he or she might be, uh, absolutely relentlessly maintains the drive uh, to sever uh, the final impediments that the EU has left on Britain. Uh, because not to do that would be a betrayal of the British people who voted uh, narrowly but significantly to leave the EU despite an overwhelming establishment campaign and project fear to keep them in, Mm. uh, and then voted at two subsequent general elections for candidates who were all promising uh, to maintain that departure from the EU. So I think it's very important that this doesn't become uh, some some kind of remainer counter coup very very important
0: do you think that's a risk that that could happen it's an important point and that my instinct has been that if you look at what the resigning ministers have said very little of it is to do with policy specifics it's either about the personality of Boris Johnson and we he's got a lot of shortcomings but or I and in line with your intuition I think it's got a lot to do with brexit do you think that there's a real risk that brexit could be overturned
1: Uh I certainly hope that won't be the case, uh, but uh, I think this is a perilous time for Britain and for the Conservative Party and for British democracy more generally. Um, Look, plainly, politicians shouldn't break the rules that they set and plainly, politicians shouldn't be cavalier about uh, personal delinquencies. But uh, from this distance... At least an element in Boris's downfall appears to have been that he had a drink and he told a joke. Now, maybe it was an inappropriate drink, maybe it was an inappropriate joke, but uh, it's a pretty unusual thing for a Prime Minister with a massive majority, even if he does have a slightly disorganised personal style and a slightly unconventional personal life, it's a very unusual thing for a Prime Minister with a massive majority to be brought down, On such a thin basis, Uh, let's face it, Daniel Andrews was fined twice uh, for breaking his own mask-wearing laws, and I don't recall anyone saying that Daniel Andrews should resign uh, because of that. I think all of us at some stage were guilty of transgressing the laws, not because we're natural lawbreakers, but because the laws were so extreme and over the top that it was almost impossible not to break them Mm. at some stage. Uh, so, so, Dan, look, uh, uh, you're right. Almost no one attacked Boris on policy grounds, although I think you could have attacked Boris on yes. policy grounds. Although it does seem now that uh, he has resigned as leader of the Conservative Party and there is a contest to take over, it does seem that some of the candidates are coming out with policy and I'm pleased to see that prominent, prominent amongst the policies being put forward are A... Uh, lower taxes and less spending, uh, and B, um, a stronger commitment to the British Armed Forces, and C, uh, a questioning of the merits of any uh, swift rush towards net zero Mm. given what's happening in energy markets around the world right now.
0: Yeah, I think the policy side of it is interesting because I think, like from my perspective, I was a very big Boris Johnson supporter in the context of Brexit and he was not – You know, he wasn't originally a a, a Brexiteer, but he sort of came on board and gave the movement a very strong push and ultimately succeeded in getting it done. On the policy front, I think he's been pretty disappointing. Net zero, uh, he hasn't really fought the culture wars in a way that he said he would. There's been higher taxes and more spending, and of course, the lockdown. So I think on a policy front, there's plenty to criticize and talk about. By the way, I don't think any of that justifies bringing down a democratically elected prime minister, but I think it is telling that so much of this is on his personality. What do you think this means to the average person in the on the street? I reckon they'd be pretty confused saying, look, we know Boris is a bit of a wayward person. We've always known that. I reckon they'd be feeling disenfranchised a bit at, at, at what has happened. What's your take on what this means to the average person?
1: That's my instinct as well, Dan. Whenever you've got an incumbent in political trouble, you can always send out uh, reporters to do Vox Pops in the street and the Vox Pops will come back to you and say, oh, yes, it's outrageous and I feel betrayed and it's scandalous, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, I think the public do understand that no politician is perfect. Every politician makes mistakes But in the end, the sanction on a politician who's failed, if that's what Boris had done, is the ballot box. It shouldn't be a a midnight party room coup. Um, So, look, I think there is this danger. I, I think to avoid this danger, now that Boris has resigned, it's going to be important to find someone who was a loyalist, a Boris loyalist uh, to take over, as well as someone who is more of a traditional conservative, uh, not in uh, wanting to abandon the red wall, but more of a traditional conservative in appreciating that you actually best help aspirational working class seats by keeping taxes low Mm. and government off their backs rather than by telling them that they've got to get an electric car yes. and they've got to get a heat pump rather than a gas boiler within the next few years. So so, so if the person who emerges as the leader of the Conservative Party uh, is a Boris loyalist uh, who appreciates that the best way forward uh, is not green ideology, uh, but Common sense measures that will build a stronger Britain and a stronger economy, and quite possibly um, gives Boris a senior job in the cabinet. I think that's probably the best way forward. Now, I, I should, I guess, <laughs> offer this caveat <laughs> most voters don't like being told what to do by foreigners, and even <laughs> though we Aussies don't really think of ourselves as foreigners in Britain. <laughs> I should stress that this is well meaning advice from someone who's an outsider, even though it's also someone who has nothing but affect, affection and respect for, for Britain and regards Britain's success as incredibly important for the well being of the wider world.
0: Well, well said. And I think the vast, for what it's worth, the vast majority of those, as you say, with working working class aspirational voters, would broadly share those views and perspectives that you've offered and and speaking of which, I wanted to uh, turn to the domestic front uh, when you're talking about green zealotry and and the impact that's gonna have on on the mainstream of our society. And it's only been a, a few weeks under this new Labor government and so far the focus has been on the international front. We haven't heard much from Anthony Albanese um, as yet on, on domestic matters other than it relates to the floods. Uh, at the end of this month will be the first sitting week of parliament and I fully expect it will be all systems go, a very rapid radical agenda by Labor. Um, they effectively have control of the Senate as well with the Greens who are likely to vote with them on many issues as well as the independent Senator for the ACT, um, David Pocock. So I fully expect that this will be Whitlam-esque in the pace and significance of change. And we already know that there's going to be legislation on net zero. There will be action, very rapid action on The Voice. There will be some kind of action on a federal ICAC, uh, truth and advertising laws, uh, media regulation, amongst many other matters, all of which will happen in some form or another this calendar year. So I'm worried that this will be very radical, very fast, and the opposition is still dusting itself off and may not be in a position to fully oppose this to the extent that we need. Um, Tony, I'd like to get your observations and assessment of what you think um, this Labor government will be up to.
1: Thanks, Dan. Two points first. First of all, Anthony Albanese has acquitted himself well on the global stage over the last few weeks. Um, He's carried himself uh, with dignity. Uh, His statements have been both strong and reasonable. And he's largely continued the agenda of the previous government. So good on the new Prime Minister for that. The other point I should make is that whatever way we voted ourselves, we are all Australian patriots and we've got to wish the new government well, even if we didn't vote for it, even if we're a little apprehensive about some of its policies. We've got to wish the new government well because our country succeeds better if the government is at its best, as opposed to floundering around. Uh, That said, obviously, I do think there are some problems ahead. You're dead right. The first legislative item is likely to be legislating for a 43% emissions cut by 2030 and net zero by 2050, followed by legislation to have a referendum on the so-called voice Uh, followed by uh, legislation to set up a federal ICAC. And I think uh, each of these is pretty defective in its own way.
0: Well, there's a lot to unpack. And I guess from the opposition's perspective, you almost don't want to be uh, spreading your resources too thin in terms of there's only so many things you can target at any one time. There's, as I say, going to be a very active legislative agenda you've outlined three of the main ones plus everything else that's going to come up what kind of uh, you know given your you know significant success as opposition leader and your uh, ability to hold governments to account would you suggest that the you know the best approach is to pick one or two main things and just focus on them or what What type of advice would you offer to the opposition in terms of how how would they best be able to manage what is going to be, I think, a pretty gargantuan task?
1: I think it's important for oppositions to oppose bad policy. Uh, You don't have to oppose everything um, because uh, every government comes up with some good things uh, and I'm sure this government will too. And I note that uh, opposition leader Peter Dutton to his credit, has not at all been critical of the new Prime Minister for his overseas travel. Uh, There was a couple of, uh, I think, uh, unfortunate criticisms from uh, opposition front benches, but uh, Peter Dutton appreciates that in the modern era, it is important that Australia's voice is heard in the councils of the world, and that does mean the Prime Minister going to these meetings. So, So I'm confident that we won't see... Opposition for opposition's sake hmm. from the new opposition. But I do think it's important to oppose things that really are a bad policy and certainly which are deeply opposed uh, to liberal conservative thinking. And I think that means opposing this 43% legislation. It means uh, opposing a constitutionally entrenched voice and it means opposing the kind of federal ICAC that I'm sure Labor is going to put forward.
0: Well, Tony, just one last question before we uh, end today's discussion. Um, It's almost got a bit of a feel to me at the moment of almost the 1970s playing out again. I think you've got an economic backdrop which is becoming increasingly unstable. We've got inflation going up rapidly, cost of living, interest rates rising again, uh, a potentially... Very active government um at the moment with a fairly divided opposition, at least for the time being. Uh, it sort of has that that feel to it again that the economy is is feeling unstable, that cost of living concerns are coming to the fore again. How does the general i guess environment of the country at the moment feel to you, the economic environment or or let's say you know how from the lived experience of the average person on the street, how do you think they're viewing this current situation?
1: Yes, Dan. look. Uh- I think the mood is uh, is subdued, mm. partly because uh, the two years of the pandemic uh, was just dreadful, mm. just dreadful, uh, partly because I think people are conscious that uh, uh, both our strategic and our prosperity prospects are a bit precarious at the moment. Mm. So I think the, the mood is subdued, but while we sometimes have to be pessimistic in the short term. We should always be optimistic about the long term, uh, because uh, if the 70s was a pretty grim time, uh, look at the 80s and 90s. Mm. Uh, They were pretty good times. We had uh, Reagan and Thatcher on the global stage. We had the Hawke government's economic reforms, and then we had the salad days of the Howard government. So, Even if the next few years might be tougher than the last, I'm confident that if good people keep the faith and fight the good fight, uh, things will come right.
0: Lovely, Tony. On that note, we'll leave it there for today's discussion. And thank you as always for coming into the studio and having these chats and I'm very much looking forward to continuing them. Thanks, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.